0: Say low, you got it. One more time, put your arms straight. Go! Nice! My name is Nikki Nieves. I am a Paralympic athlete and a Paralympian having had competed in uh, Rio 2016 for the Women's National Sitting Volleyball Team and I'm currently still competing.
1: Men's sitting volleyball entered the Paralympics in 1980, but women's sitting volleyball came onto the scene 24 years later in 2004. The rules are similar to standing volleyball, with the exception that the players sit on the floor, and the nets rest about three and a half feet from the ground instead of about seven and a half feet. Sitting volleyball can be fun for both able-bodied and disabled athletes, and Nikki's participated in both throughout her life, playing able-bodied volleyball for Queens College. When the opportunity arose for her to join Team USA and play sitting volleyball, she jumped on it.
0: Sitting volleyball, particularly. It's cool, I love it, I play it, you know, kind of like I'm proving that I'm worth it. Like, I don't have two hands, but I can do it.
1: Nikki was born without a hand, and while she can play volleyball both sitting and standing, sitting volleyball has helped her grow more comfortable in the public eye, owning her disability. Sitting volleyball is the only form of Paralympic volleyball, so it's adaptive to people with as many different types of disabilities as possible. For example, while Nikki has legs, not all of her teammates do. Sitting volleyball
0: kind of just opened my eyes to ability. And I've always been super afraid to like have my hand out. And funny, because everybody that knows me knows that I don't have a hand you're in the public eye there's no like hiding it you can't there's nowhere to hide it
1: if you look up the u.s women's sitting volleyball team you'll see a team of women who don't hide their disabilities instead of letting their disabilities keep them from doing something they love they found a way to do it yes it looks different but that doesn't mean it's any less hard or awesome or deserving of our attention and praise in fact I'd argue that Paralympic athletes are the ultimate masters of resiliency.
0: For those that aren't born with the normal two legs, two arms, or two hands, or whatever, if you're born outside of what's normal for you to have, my ability is going to look different from somebody else's because I'm going to adapt. Just because it's an adaptive sport doesn't make it any easier And if you're doubting and if you think it's cute, because I hate when people are like, oh, that's so cute. I highly, highly suggest going and trying that sport. And I feel like because we fought so much and we've used our voice even for equal pay when it comes to like medals, it's finally changing. Like the other night they played our, our gold medal match on NBC Sports at seven. That's never happened. People are literally like texting me like, oh my God, I'm eating and I'm watching you play. And yada, yada, like like, I literally started crying. I was like, it's finally happening. Like people are finally valuing us as athletes and not like the stepchild, you know what I mean? Like you weren't good enough where there's something impeding you from being on this level, so you're on this level. The more that the Paralympics and any Paralympic sport or any adaptive sport has like a light to be shined on it and the more they're able to just be in the public and show like hey i might not play basketball traditionally but i'm playing basketball in a wheelchair the more that the word ability becomes normalized in both realms and in some cases like for me i could play standing and sitting and in some cases it might not look like that for another athlete but it doesn't impede their ability to play the sport in general. The sport might not look the same, but it's still, the ability is still there. It's just how you go about it and what tools you use to be able to participate.
1: Adaptability is a valuable skill for everyone, but especially for individuals with disabilities because they have to find new ways to do ordinary tasks, like tying your shoes.
0: I remember my mom like, Put her hand into fist and like trying to like show me how to tie her shoe and it just it was not clicking. Literally I learned how to tie my shoe watching somebody else do it, which is weird because I'm like, I don't have two hands. Like, how do I pick up on that one, you know?
1: And knowing that so much of what we learn comes from someone who looks like us, modeling things for us, Nikki serves as a volunteer at New Ability Athletics, an organization that exists to help limb different children learn and feel confident in sports and in life
0: being able to like engage with these kids that like look like me and like be a mentor to a lot of them and a lot of them get bullied a lot of them don't think that they have the ability to lead an individual life outside of their family because of their difference so it's really cool to be able to like be the example cuz I like to say like if they can see me do it then you can do it
1: Nikki additionally recently founded a nonprofit limitless people that focuses on teaching volleyball to all individuals regardless of age, gender, race, or physical ability. It's so impressive to me how adaptable athletes with disabilities are. And this got me thinking how much we all limit our behaviors based on what we see modeled by others who look like us. In Becky Sauerbrunn's episode, Dr. Klugman mentioned that it's really hard to be what we can't see. So who knows what else we're missing out on? I was also struck by how Nikki's team leans into one another's strengths and weaknesses to maximize their potential.
2: Where I'm strong, maybe in speed because I'm light and I don't have my legs or whatever, someone else is strong in like height or they can turn better or they have a better balance. Or, and so we're having different people in different positions and their strengths balance out other people's weaknesses.
1: This is Nikki's former teammate, Carrie Miller Ortiz. She's now retired, but she was a veteran Team USA player when they won Golden Rio in 2016. Carrie had competed in the 2012 London Games and the 2008 Beijing Games, winning silver in both. Carrie is a U.S. Army veteran who earned the rank of sergeant. She became an amputee in 1999 when a drunk driver hit her car. You know,
2: there's some people who are like, you know, and then there's ones that are, quiet and, you know, whatever. But, like, say Nikki, for instance, she is amazing, an amazing spirit. Like, you know, you could be there fighting or whatever and you see people get down and, you know, I know that I could always look to her and be like, okay, she's with me, let's go, yeah, You know, and have someone to cheer and be happy with and, and move forward, you know? And I think those are the things that make teams, you know?
1: Until Nikki joined, Carrie was the only person of color on the team.
2: Nikki probably thought I was crazy, but as soon as she walked in... I ran up to her and I jumped in a hug on her and I was so happy because for me, you know, I'm a woman of color and I've been the only woman of color on the team from the time that I was on there. She's Afro-Latina. She's very outspoken and, you know, she's very strong in her, one, her spiritual beliefs and, you know, in her cultural beliefs and standards. And so it was really kind of a breath, breath of fresh air to have her there and fight the good fight, you know?
1: Nikki now has two teammates of color, but as mentioned, Carrie had been the only person of color on the team before Nikki joined. I asked Carrie why having teammates of color was so important.
2: You know, sometimes it's very difficult to be around others that aren't like you. You know, we all want the same things in life. We all, you know, have had similar shared experiences, right? But at the same time, when you look around and you still see that there's a difference, and then, you know, a little, little marks about culture or you know, hairdos or things like that, you're kind of like, ah, that's the difference.
1: As Carrie mentioned, Nikki identifies as an Afro-Latina. Her mom is Puerto Rican and her dad is Afro-Latino. Carrie shared that when the team was in Rio, Nikki would regularly start speaking in Spanish. She even acted as her translator because of the similarities between Portuguese and Spanish. One part of her culture that most people aren't aware of is that she loves to sing. And man, she's good at it. Can you sing like two lines for us?
0: Is it okay if it's in Spanish?
1: Por supuesto. Oh, okay, perfect.
0: Santo Jesus, Santo es el Cordero de Dios, Digno de mi alabanza. Wow,
1: you you are incredible. Oh, thank you. (laughs) No, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. (laughs) I've always been so incredibly jealous of people with such beautiful voices like that. It's really, really beautiful. Oh, thank you. (laughs) It wasn't easy growing up and trying to identify what group she fit into. And there were parts of her cultures that she didn't fully understand. But as Nikki's gotten older, she's done her homework and is using her platform to help educate others.
0: So I am 100% an Afro-Latina, so I am a Black Puerto Rican. Growing up, it was weird because I did feel like I had to choose. Like, I wasn't Latina enough for, like, Latino kids and I wasn't Black enough for the Black kids. Now that I'm growing older and I'm seeing, like, all of these movements start and, like, People that fought like and still think the same way that I do and like other individuals that were in my same boat and really just really just educate myself on like why now I. I, Oh my gosh, I love it and it's really cool growing up seeing both sides. And now that I'm older and I'm like able to like educate myself fully, I can appreciate it because now I know like how to talk to people and how to like educate them and how to have compassion because they don't understand, just like how I didn't understand or how my family didn't understand because it's ingrained to think a certain kind of way.
1: Hearing Nikki describe her experience growing up as an Afro-Latina wasn't one I could personally relate to, so I needed to learn more. I spoke with Dr. Sosi del Moral, professor of American Studies and Black Studies at Amherst College, where she's also the chair of the Black Studies Department. She was born and raised in Puerto Rico, and in the States she identifies as part of the Black community while simultaneously maintaining her Puerto Rican identity and culture.
3: People like Nikki who are both Puerto Rican and African American represent both cultures both identities she may have grown up in a Spanish speaking household her food her music her awareness of her cultural identity could have been as much Puerto Rican as it was African American and it could have been you know Puerto Rican from New York Puerto Rican from anywhere in the US or Puerto Rican from the island culturally Each group has their own distinct markers, just like Puerto Ricans are distinct from Dominicans, are distinct from Cubans. Culturally, they're also distinct from African Americans. So someone like Nikki, who has features that are identified with African Americans or Africans in the U.S., there's really no space for her in the traditional U.S. category of Latino or Latinx. There's an assumption in the U.S., that Latino heritage means brown and often light brown. And so all the thousands and hundreds of thousands of peoples in the United States of Latin American descent or of racial mixture who are Latino and African-American for example, but look black are often rejected by members of the Latino community anyway. And so the one like Nikki may find refuge and uh, a welcome in the African-American community or African-American label, because the African-American label will be more inclusive of all African and African-Seminent peoples in the U.S.
1: The U.S. has been a total pressure cooker this year. We've had the stresses of the coronavirus, and as a result, the Olympics and Paralympics were postponed, which has no doubt been a huge setback for all the athletes who'd been training. But on top of that, we have the upcoming national election and the peaking racial tensions around the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. You
0: know, the rioting
1: and the protests,
0: and it was really heavy. On top of that, you're thinking okay, like, not only are we dealing with a pandemic but i'm just now getting over that the games got moved to next year and now this is just happening it was kind of like a bomb dropped you know it's not that any of this stuff is new because it's all it's been happening it's continuous you know it's a learned system it's a taught system however This time, it was just a lot because now people are recognizing the roles that they play within systematic racism and what has been wrong uh, within our society, and the ones that want to accept it and kind of just like evaluate themselves are willing to change and wanting to change. But it's still hard because it's still so
1: heavy on you. Nikki has been an active advocate for Black Lives Matter having hard but productive conversations with her teammates and followers on social media. She uses her voice to make a difference and encourages others to do the same. She credits her team's 2016 gold medal in part to the open communication their team had due to the onboarding of a sports psychologist.
0: We haven't always been a team that was so vulnerable with each other. (laughs) You don't realize how important it is to have people helping you learn how to be a team off of the court. And it's not to say that we're not a team, but like you don't have to be friends, but it helps. Like you don't have to understand each other, but it helps. This is what made us so successful. Kind of helped us realize and be okay with having the conversations now. Now, if we want to continue to set the bar and be the bar, like our team likes to say, we need to like still have these tough conversations. Because, you know, our team is not all Caucasian women.
1: Now, most of us aren't on national sports teams that can afford team psychologists. However, the takeaway remains the same, be it for a national team, a corporate team, a school, or even a family unit. Yes, open and honest conversations are terrifying. But to build trust, we need to have them. We all have coworkers, friends, even family members who think totally different than we do. And all too often, we simply avoid the hard conversations because it's easier and frankly more fun to just chat with those who think like we do. My challenge to you and to myself is that if we want that gold medal team, we need to have those conversations. If we don't, we're cheating ourselves. We're missing out on what could become a beautiful relationship, and even partnership. And that likely means we're gonna mess up and say the wrong thing, but keep showing up. The next time you're texting in an echo chamber, check yourself and see who else you can message. And yes, it's tough and not fun and scary, but we gotta do the work and not just sit in the comfort of those who are like us.
0: I even told my teammates, I'm like, I'm just gonna pray and continue to like, ask god for patience and for grace like the same grace that god gives me is the same grace that i want to be able to give to other people because i i see the hurt in some of my teammates and like trying to like change it you know but it's tough (laughs) it's really tough and if we want to like further it and make it better and make the future better and if i want equality like i have to use my voice so For all Black kids, Puerto Rican kids, like, use your voice, speak out. And if you have the opportunity to pay it forward, to pay your blessing forward, take it.
1: There's absolutely no shortage of opinions surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement right now. The vast majority are extremely supportive and are advocating in ways they never have before. For others, they see it as just another political issue, and they dismiss it. A small minority are outright in opposition to the movement. To provide some perspective, I spoke with Latasha Brown, Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics fellow. She shared her own story with me about growing up as a Southern Black woman.
4: Well, the first thing I did right was the day I started to fight. Keep your eyes on the prize and hold on, hold on. I mean, that in itself captures it the music, the culture, the grounding, the words of that song, the fact that I learned that song from my grandmother, not necessarily in a protest march, but that same song I use in a protest march, that same song I use when I'm doing a class at Harvard. The bottom line is that there's something about that song and that space that gives me permission to be and be a southern black woman that I bring that everywhere I go. I had to learn that. You know, as a young woman, I was trying to contort myself to be what I thought the world wanted me to be. And I was too Southern, I was too black, I was too radical, I was too friendly, I was too happy, all of those things, right? Which really kind of started in my own mind. And at some point, what I had to do is literally recognize that the most important contribution I could make in the world was not based in my doing, it was based in my being. And that who I be would drive everything. It was in my beingness, not in my doingness. I am living proof that you can authentically be who you are and literally be a contribution to the world as a learner, as a student, and as a teacher, and
1: as an expert. And so I wear all of those things, sometimes simultaneously. Latasha herself is a world-renowned activist and co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund an organization that seeks to increase power in marginalized, predominantly Black communities. She's also the co-founder and visionary of the Southern Black Women's Consortium, which just raised $100 million to launch a one-year initiative supporting Black girls and women throughout 12 Southern states. Clearly, she knows a thing or two about using your voice and taking action in support of the Black community. So I asked her for tangible ways all listeners, regardless of race, can better support the Black community and the Black Lives Matter movement.
4: I think we all have to look at where does oppression live in us? We have been nurtured in the belly of the beast. <laughs> like, the shaping of how we see the world, how we see each other, how we see ourselves has been shaped by a context which is heavily misogynist and racist, We just know this, right? And so I think one of the things we have to do is really do some self-reflection where we're really thinking about how does oppression live in me and do your work? And what I mean by that is, I don't mean the work outside of ourselves, I mean the work in ourselves, where we're really unpacking where racism lives or where prejudice lives or whether sexism lives. How has it impacted us and how are we freeing ourselves from that and how are we shifting the paradigm of how we see the world? The second thing is I think it's really important to to have a political home. That is really important, I think, that if you are really serious about doing anti-racist work, then you should work with an anti-racist organization. Find a political home with a group that is doing work around this so that you can broaden your exposure to the subject matter that you can actually co-think with other figure things out it's okay to make mistakes right you're not gonna find the perfect organization but i do think that we need to create more spaces and more more spaces for people to have a depth of conversations that are that are safe and authentic and real the third and the last thing is that we can't be silent when we see racism or when we see oppression. That we have to all collectively use our power, not in seeing the pain of somebody else, but recognizing the pain of someone else's pain is actually connected to my own life. There are too many of us that are not speaking out, that are not using our own circles of influence to push back to end racism.
1: On top of this advice, Latasha poses a thought-provoking question for all of us to wrestle with
4: question is what would America look like without racism and sexism? I want us to struggle with that question. I want us to struggle with that question because part of it there is nothing that has come into being in the world that was not first seen as a vision. And so if we're really serious about ending racism and sexism we have got to envision what that would look like so that we can actually move towards that. And so I think enough of us are not spending time. We're spending time responding to what is, and that makes sense, I understand that, but we also have to hold a radical reimagined nation and think about what that looks like and what systems will require and how will we interact and what new institutions have to be developed. We can't just respond to what is, we have to spend time on the possibility of what could be.
1: The work that Nikki and Latasha and many others are doing for the Black community is very real and powerful. In the same vein, no matter where you live, your gender or ethnicity, whether you're disabled or able-bodied, we can all play a part in making change happen. Nikki leaves us with her own powerful words of advice.
0: Go for it. Use your voice. Be respectful, of course, (laughs) but use your voice. You don't know how powerful your voice is until you use it. Honestly, in my eyes, there's no platform that's too big and there's no platform that's too small. If you have a social media, if you have somewhere that people even listen to you, if, you know what I mean? Like whatever ability that you have to like, use your voice for good, for equality,
3: use it.
1: Thanks for joining us on Flame Bears, the woman athletes carrying Tokyo's torch. Be sure to tune in to the next episode where we speak with Ezine Kalu Phelps of the Nigerian basketball team. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your listening platform so you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, please leave us a review. We'd greatly appreciate it. We'll catch you on our next episode of Flame Bears.